Well, if you have your Bibles with you, would you open them to the book of Acts in the 8th chapter? And I know if, for everybody who was here last time I preached, and I would like to ask you to stand. We're going to read. I'm not going to read the entire chapter like I did last time. So if you would, would you stand with me? We're going to read the first eight verses, and then I'm going to pray. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Father, this morning I'd like to just come before you and just give you thanks, God, for this the Lord's day, this day that we can come and we can freely worship you. My prayer this morning, God, is that that in all that we have done and all that we're going to do, that God, that you would get glory for yourself, that your word would be proclaimed, and that in today that Christ would be exalted. We pray for your will to be done, nothing more and nothing less. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, <clears throat> we've been going through the book of Acts for a while. Hey, let me just say this. When, when babies are crying and stuff, little Ignatius back there when Kyle was reading Scripture, man, he's hollering, you know. That actually is, is glorifying God. They're, they're healthy. They're doing what they do. So, listen, don't worry too much about that stuff for me, okay? So, here's the thing. In the book of Acts, we've been going through this. In the, in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, where you're going to use these three, ver- these three chapters here, and we're looking at two men in particular. We're looking at Stephen and we're looking at Philip. These were two of the men who were the, uh, the first seven that we believe were deacons that were ordained in the church in Jerusalem. And then at that point, it just kind of focuses and highlights on first uh, Stephen. I mean, when I say the life, it was pretty much the life of Stephen. I mean, he's ordained a deacon. He's doing great things in the community. He's accused. He preaches the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts, and then he is stoned to death. He is the first martyr in the modern church in the book of Acts. Well... And then we, we pick up in, in, in chapter 8, and we're going to look primarily at Philip. But to do this, I want, to, I want to kind of transition into this. Now, so I'm going to back up, and I'm going to just read just a little bit. Um, Stephen has preached this sermon to him, and then he turns it on him. And in 50, verse 51 of chapter 7, he says, You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. 
I mean, up to that point, everything that Stephen was saying, everything they had accused Stephen of, and, you know, you're, you're rejecting Moses, you're rejecting the law, all these things, the temple, Stephen was spot on. But all through his sermon, he's talking about those through history that were always opposed to God's remnant, God's people, the Jews themselves. And then if there was anything unclear, he clears it up for them. You know, last time we used this in modern day sermon, it sounds like this. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. He says, you stiff-necked, you stubborn people, you uncircumcised in heart and ears. And it ends in this. 57, verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city. They stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. The first mention of Saul, who's later going to be used greater than any man in the New Testament outside of Christ. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And then we pick up in 8.1. And Saul approved of his execution. What that's meaning is this. Paul, or I said Paul, Saul approved of his execution. He was the man that was in charge of it. When it said that they laid their coats or their garments at his feet, he was the guy in charge. He was the guy taking leadership of this stoning. And it says he approved of his execution. And listen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now, when we back up and we start thinking about what we've been through already, remember when, when God's church and God's plan is going forward, you're going to have opposition, are you not? Opposition will come from one of two places. It's going to come from the outside, the unbelieving world attacking his church, trying to prevent the gospel from going forward. Or it's going to come from the inside where there, we'll have quarrels and divisions amongst us, and that is really the more harmful one. Now, in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, what we see is we see that they were first threatened. And what happens when opposition comes from outside the church? Well, generally what happens is just what happened. The church drew together. I mean, you're out there and things are just kind of going, but when persecution happens, it causes us to draw together. And what do we do? We pray. We praise God. And their prayer was, Lord, give us boldness that we may continue to preach. In chapter 4, we see that they were threatened. Don't preach this name again. In chapter 6, they not only were arrested and threatened, but they were beaten. Don't preach this name anymore. So typically what happens is that opposition from the outside draws the church together, whereas opposition from the inside, when Satan's working through its members, whether they're believers or unbelievers, it causes division and separation. Well, here what we see is we see opposition from the outside. Now, there is a change that happens here. It says, on that day there arose a great persecution against Jerusalem. Now, up until this point, there was times that God had given them favor. The people, whether they liked him or not, they held the church in high esteem. But here, something different happened. 
we have the first guy that is martyred. If you look down in verse 2, it says, Devout men buried Stephen, and they made great lamentations over him. A couple things to know there. When, when, typically at a funeral, there was always people that would be hired to go, and they would mourn, and they would make lamentations for the dead. So when it says they made great lamentation for Stephen, what they're saying is this man was in high esteem by the community, believing and unbelieving. Stephen was a man that lived with such integrity that even people that probably weren't believers, they were making great lamentation. The other thing to know is this. It was against the law to make lamentations for a condemned criminal. So here you have people making not just lamentation, but great, loud lamentations for Stephen. Now, if you are the Jews, if you're the Sanhedrin and you're trying to stop this, what does this do to you? See, the public is, is crying out saying, this was not right. And so what happens is this. Can't read it, but I have a feeling they met together and they said, we have to put this to a stop. And that's where Saul comes in. Saul wasn't just a persecutor. He was the definite article. He was the persecutor of the church. And so on that day, this great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And it says, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now, if you remember back in, in chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus says, you're going to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the furthest most parts of the world and we're seeing it step by step as jesus had said it was going to be now here's the thing unlike when the church drew together now we see this we see that they were all scattered and one thing you want to understand about the scattered is it's not a division in the church the persecution has risen up and i mean we're talking about really being persecuted you go in in acts 22 4 and you read where Paul actually describes this persecution that he did. He said, I was putting them to death. I was binding both men and women, and I was putting them in prison. There was an intense persecution. They were going in house to house and dragging men and women out. The persecution was on the rise, and Paul was leading the charge. Now, here's the thing. The church at this point is between two and three years old. Now, I want you to think about something. Outside of just a little bit of stuff, the church has not did anything but just stay right in Jerusalem. In God's sovereign plan, what he's saying is, it is time to take the gospel out. We've got to go further than Jerusalem with this. And so it says they... They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, that's outside of Jerusalem, and Samaria, except the apostles. It, it's amazing to me, church. You know, it, it, here's what happens. How, how do things like sending agencies happen? Well, typically, here's how they happen. Some guy a long time ago went out, just went out, felt like God was leading him. And he goes out and through his experience and trials and errors from doing well to face planning on the mission field, he's journaling things. He's writing it down. Do this. Don't do that. 
learn the culture, you know, whatever it is. And then we come back and we put this all in a nice package, right? And then we go to missionary training school or whatever it is, and we say, this is how you do it. And we're trying to be so mechanical with what we're doing. The book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. It ought to be called the Acts or the actions of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, through the Christians. Can I just tell you something? I don't care what seminary training you go through. I don't care what mission agency you go to. Let me tell you something. When God sends you out, every person you run into has not been to your missionary training course. Okay? All of them theological things that you learn that are all good and well, guess what? What happens when you come against a real-life person on the street and he says one thing that you never got to cover in training? You see, there's a real sense, church, that what the church really needs to be doing. I'm not saying those things are bad at all. Don't, don't mistake me here. But what I am saying is this. What the church needs to be bathed in is prayer. They need to be seeking the will of God. And God, how are you directing me in this? And guess what? Yeah, we don't always have all the answers right up front. So they're going out. They're going to Judea. They're going through Samaria. And it says that devout men buried Stephen, and they made great lamentations over him. And it says, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Have you ever wondered why Paul always made, gave himself the title, I am the chief of sinners? I mean, so many people will do that, won't we? we? We will get so much pride about our past life. But I want you to think about this. As Paul, when he became, went from Saul to Paul, and he's going out on his evangelistic missionary journeys, and he's proclaiming Christ, and how to be set free from your sins. I wonder how many times Paul laid in bed at night, thinking about guys like Stephen, about men and women that may have still been in prison at that very time while he is freely out preaching the gospel. Let me tell you something. When you look around, I want you to know something. God can use and God can save anyone he so well pleases. And he can use them however he wants. We find in the church today, we find this idolatry. This, we don't think of it like this, but it's a worship of big-time preachers. I mean, we'll argue over who's better. I just got news for you. Before R.C. Sproul died, him and John MacArthur were great, great friends. They saw they didn't see everything right, but they were on the same team. Sure, do we have preferences, but let me just remind you of something. God can raise up and put on a platform whoever he wants, and he can also take them right off of there. It's never about men. It's always about Christ, okay? Keep that in mind. Don't worry about writing books. Let other people write books about you. Saul was ravaging the church. I remember reading a book a few years ago, and I, I, I just have to assume it was a true story. It's about a, a, a man in Russia raised up in a, in a boy's home during the hard communist times. He was end up being a great, big, strong teenager and. The communists, they, they would recruit these young men, and they taught them how to fight and all these things. And what they used them for was they would 
they would find out where there were secret underground churches meeting. And these guys would know when the time was and they would break into the house meeting. We're talking about big, strong. I mean, this guy's like six foot four. And they would go in there and they would just start beating old women and old men. And God saved this young man. He could not escape the Lord. The name of the book is called The Persecutor. It's brutal. It's graphic. This is what, this is what Saul was doing. Persecution was on the move. But I want to show you something. Look at this. Now those who were scattered... They went about. That phrase "went about" is a is a is a missionary term. They're, they just didn't run. They just didn't run out like they were just like scared. No, as they were being scattered, there was an absolute direction of the Holy Spirit. It says they they went about preaching the word. That word "preach" there is to herald, to publicly proclaim, to lift up your voice where all can hear it. What the church did not do is they did not run to a dark corner and cower together in fear. And why is that? Well, if you would, turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 10. Those three years that Jesus walked with his disciples, he was teaching and he was training. And when it looked like these guys didn't know anything... He says, after I'm gone, after I leave, you're, the, Holy, the Comforter is going to come, the Holy Spirit. And He's going to bring these things to remembrance. He's going to teach you. He's going to guide you in all truth. In Matthew 10, verse 16, He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He said, So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts. And they will fog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Are you listening to this, church? This idea that, that Christianity is this, it's like, a, it's like a, a country club. We just all meet here and it's just all, you know, kumbaya. Oh, it's just, you know, just... This real cozy situation. We, we, we have coffee together. We, we have parties and all that may be good and well. But what is the purpose of the church? I was reading in John MacArthur's commentary on the book of Acts this morning. I should have brought it. I'm going to butcher it, but I'll give you the best I can. He starts talking about in 1956 when... Jim Elliott and Nathan Saint and those had went down into the Alcas. The missionaries met as they're seeking God's will in this. And they said, Is it, does it make sense for five men, five families to go to a handful of savages while there's millions in the world? And they said, it must be so. Because God has said that there's going to be people from all tribes and tongues and languages, nations. They're going to come to saving faith. After they make their, their maiden landing on the, the Palm Beach there and they're speared to death. 
The world was saying, what a waste. But as Elizabeth Elliot wrote, there were missionaries in Africa who said, I knew two of those men, and they have, what they did has left a mark on my life. There were missionaries right there in Brazil, Indians, who just didn't even care about these Alcas that fell to their knees in prayer and repentance for their lack of concern for these people. There was a major in the Air Force who resigned and signed on with aviation missionary, whatever it's called. They fly people in and out of these things as a missionary team. An 18-year-old boy in Des Moines, Iowa, prayed all week long. And after a week, he came to his parents and he says, I'm committing my life completely to Jesus Christ. I am going to take the place of one of those five men. You see, church, as we go out, as these things happen, we need to know that there's going to be opposition to what we're doing. To think otherwise is just being unbiblical. It's not even knowing what Christ and what His church is all about. If you think that, that, that what Christianity is, it's I want to be a pastor of a church and, and surely to goodness I'll be, you know, first of all, I'll start off as probably just one of the speakers, but, but my end goal is to be the keynote speaker at all the conferences because we all know that conference hopping is what Christianity is all about, right? Where everybody can say, wow, that was an incredible message. Well, let me finish this for you, okay? Skip down, if you will, to Matthew 10, 26. He talks about how that if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they despise and all these things, you know, your, your family's going to deliver you up. And then he says this in 26. He says, so have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. I don't care what you're going to go through or what you're going through. I'm telling you this. God knows everything about it. Whatever trial you're going through, whatever persecution, whatever opposition, when it looks like everybody's against you, I promise you, in the end, God is going to uncover truth. And then he says this. He says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. We have, we have many, many, many professing Christians who love their quiet time. And I, and I love mine. Didn't get a lot of it this morning. And isn't it awesome in that quiet time when we're in, in the Word and, and we're in prayer and we're in meditation and God whispers, He opens something up to us. I mean, man, it just feels like your heart is, is just three times that size. And, I mean, it's just like I've got I to gotta share this with somebody. Don't ever tell your wife. You're going to wake her up. She's like, okay. It's like I was really expecting a different result. But so many people do exactly what they do the first part. He says they, they heard something in the dark. He says, let it be known in the light. He's saying, put it out there. He says, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops where everybody can hear it. It's like when Godwin was here. If you knew, if somebody told you the cure for cancer, would you just sit in your living room with the lamp on and your coffee going, and your study Bible there going, 
praise God. If I ever get cancer, I know how it's cured. But I'm not going to tell nobody. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He goes back to like people like Jim Elliott. People who lose their life and it looks like such a waste. But not only did that tribe of Alcas, most of them got saved later due to the effort of his wife and, and Saint's sister. But look at the ripple effect it had throughout the world. And these are just a few stories that Elizabeth Elliot had written about. Let me ask you this. Has that story touched your life? Has it gave you courage in times when you were discouraged? Did it strengthen your, when you were afraid, did it make you say, I can, I can do this by God's grace? We don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. The question always goes like this. How far are you willing to follow Christ? Think, just ponder that question for a moment. In your own mind, you're on a journey with Christ, and He's leading. Where's the stopping point for you? Where do you get off? Is it, is it well, I'll do anything here, Lord, you want me to do. Well, I want you to go into Mexico. I want you to go to Puerto Rico. I, I can't follow you there, Lord. I mean, we, we don't think of it like that. But where is the, where's the stopping point to follow him? Man, when I, my, where I have, if I have a stopping point, it usually goes like this. Lord, I'll go. But man, those, those crazy terrorist countries. I mean, my thought, when I think of it, is I'm getting off the plane, some nut shows up with a gun and just shoots me and it's over. And I'm like, that didn't seem worth it. That's kind of what, I mean, I know it's just a really weird random thought, but it happens a lot. You see, in God's providence, his sovereignty over missions, over evangelism, what did God do? Well, he caused persecution to come to the church so that they would have to flee. They're going in house to house, and they scattered, and they went about preaching the word. The word. And then in verse 5, it says this, Philip went down to the city of Samaria... And proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, is this the first time that Christ was proclaimed in Samaria? Anybody familiar with John chapter 4? Jesus and his disciples are going from Jerusalem to Judea. And, and, and if you look on the map, see, the, the Samaria is right like a direct straight line. But the Jews hated the Samaritans so bad, they would go all the way around to bypass them. But on this particular day, it's what we call a divine appointment. Jesus says, I need to go through Samaria today. I have an appointment at noon at a well with a woman. And you say, well, well, if Jesus already went to Samaria, and we know the story, she ran to town. The disciples are all confused. They're like, why is our rabbi, why is our leader talking to a woman, not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman? And not, it wasn't just that she was a Samaritan, and it wasn't just that she was a woman, but she was 
Even by Samaritan standards, she was a sinful woman who wasn't allowed to go early in the morning or in the cool of the evening to draw water with the other women. But Jesus had a meeting with her. And after a long dialogue there and exposing her sin, exposing her life, she comes to the realization that the light has turned on. I think this is the Messiah. There's a great picture in her. She comes with a water pot. It says when she left, she left her water pot. Just a picture of here. She came with the old life, and she leaves with the new. And then Jesus gives him a lesson. He says, look around. Look at these crops. They're not even supposed to be ready, but look, they're already ripe. He says, you know, as the saying goes, you're going to enter into, you're going to reap where you didn't even sow. And I mean, they're just like, what are you talking about? And about that time, here come the Samaritan, all these people coming over the hill. They were about to reap where this Samaritan woman had sowed. And then they said, we don't believe just because you told us. We believe because we're hearing him. The Samaritans had a hope in a Messiah, too. So you say, well, now, Ron, if, 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 if Jesus already went to Samaria, what happened? Well, I want to tell you what happened. They also believed, like the Jews, or at least this group here, they believed that this Jesus was the Messiah, the one that even they had been waiting on. But guess what news they heard? This one that we thought was the Messiah, well, we've heard they've crucified him, and we know that anybody that hangs on a tree is cursed by God. You think the Samaritans would be any different than than the Jews? Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke 24. Last chapter of the book of Luke. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. Jesus has been crucified. On this particular day, he has risen from the dead. Some women had gone to the tomb. They had ran back and reported that he's not there. They ran down and checked it out. And, and, there, and there's, there's a question. They don't know what's become of this Jesus. They don't know what's happened to him. And the other thing is, is we, we suppose this was the Messiah. This is the one who's going to redeem us, deliver us out of this Roman rule. And we're so confused. And so well, this is what happened. There's a man named Cleopas and his friend, and they're walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. And Jesus, he draws near to them, but he withholds their eyes from being able to tell who he is. And in verse 17, he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. I mean, he hears them. And, and this, listen, folks, this was, it would be like somebody walking into Oklahoma City when the, when the Murrah bombing happened. And somebody going, hey, what's going on, man? Why is everybody in such a panic? You would just look at them like, where have you been? Jesus comes and he says, what are you, what are you guys talking about? Why are you looking like this? And one of them named Cleopas answered, he says, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. 
Moreover, some women of our company amazed us that were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they, but him they did not see. These people are in distress, aren't they? I mean, just a few days before, everything is sky high. There's rejoicing. Hosanna! And now they don't know where he's at. They don't know what has happened. There is so much confusion. They watched the one that they believed was the Son of God be crucified. But in 25, Jesus said to them, he says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then in verse 27, this is one you ought to circle or highlight. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, as the story goes on there, can you imagine Jesus walking with these men? Now, keep in mind, the Samaritans, all they held to was the first five books. They didn't hold to all the other things. But can you imagine Philip going down to Samaria and preaching? And they're saying, well, we, we thought that was the Christ. We, we met him at the well, and, and this woman did, and then this happened, and now we just don't know. And, and Philip comes down and says, oh, let me tell you a story. Y'all believe the first five books, don't you? Now, I know it wasn't like that, but he says, don't you remember? Don't you remember over in Genesis 22? Remember that story about Abraham going to offer up Isaac? But God says, stop. He says, I'm going to give my son. The question was asked, where's the lamb for the offering? And they turn and they see this ram caught in the thicket. Picture of Christ, the Lamb of God. But he's caught in the thicket. There's The thicket is the curse that's put on man. The horns represent his authority. And then we come to the great compound name of the Lord. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Oh, this Jesus, he had to die. They begin to open the scriptures to the Samaritans. And they began to believe in Christ. Can you imagine next? They said, now look, I know you guys don't believe in these other ones, but why don't we show you what Isaiah wrote? He was beaten and he was marred beyond recognition. It pleased the Father to crush him. He bore the iniquities of us all that we could be alive in him. Can you see things? I don't know that it was like that, but I'm just saying he preached Christ unto them. The key thing you want to get out of Matthew or out of Luke 24:27 is this. We want to know Jesus most assuredly in his word. So many times Christians are talking about a Jesus that does not exist. He is a figment of somebody's imagination. We want to know Christ in his word. The way he has revealed himself. 
And we want to go proclaim his gospel the only way that it can be proclaimed. Folks, do you, do you not get this? If we don't preach the gospel, people are not going to come to Christ. There is no other way. We, we got people that try to teach things like, well, there's people out there that they, they've never heard the gospel. So I think God will save people based on the knowledge they have. Listen, Romans 1 tells us they know God. There is no such thing as an atheist because God does not believe in atheists. He says, you know I'm here because of my creation. You know I'm real because of the conscience that I've given you. I want you to think about that gospel message. They can be saved based on whatever, some whatever knowledge they have. That is a general knowledge they know there's a God. There is nothing that will save a man with that knowledge. There is only one message, and there's only one name that a person can be saved by. And outside of that, there is no salvation. So I want to ask you something today, church. When we come to the Great Commission, we have a commission and we have a calling. We have a general call that everybody should go preach the gospel. I want you to know that when it says that they all went, they were all scattered except the apostles, it wasn't like one day there's 50 or 60,000 Christians meeting house to house. And then the next day, Peter's like, hey, John, where did everybody go? It's just us 12 guys now. That's not what happened. God scattered those that he was sending out in his church to go proclaim the gospel. I want to ask you something. Do you desire to see people saved? I hear people say this a lot. I feel like God may be calling me to the mission field. Well, my first question to you is this. Do you even evangelize where you're at? Do you even tell people about Jesus where you live right now? I want to tell you something. Stephen and Philip were evangelizing right there in Jerusalem. It cost Stephen his life, and Philip was scattered. The Lord sent him down to Samaria that even those wicked, heathen Samaritans could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. And he goes here and he says, and it says in the crowds, in verse 6, he says, In the crowds with one accord, they paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. Now, I want to show you something. Okay, remember this. The book of Acts is not for church doctrine. It's not primarily for that. There is doctrine in here. It is a historical narrative. It is the early part of the Christian church, and, and we're transitioning. And remember, they didn't get to pack their Bibles down there and show somebody. Look what Paul wrote in Romans. Oh, yeah, we're down here because Paul's called Saul, and he's persecuting us. So Romans wasn't around to quote. You're going down to these Samaritans who witnessed Jesus with their own eyes. Some of them did. And then they heard he was crucified. So they don't know what's going on. And then Philip goes and preaches Christ to him. And then God validates. God confirms that he had sent them. 
with the signs and the wonders that were following them. Because no doubt, those Samaritans, even though they may not have saw too many of that, much of that when Jesus was there, I'm sure there was, but they heard about a lot of things coming out of Jerusalem and Galilee and different places. And they come with the message of Christ is the Messiah. That's funny. The Messiah is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Messiah. And God confirms that with miracles and signs and healings and things like that. And it says in verse 7, it says, Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Didn't say all, it said many. And then it ends with this. So there was much joy in that city. Christian, I want to ask you something. Do you, do you find today that you could agree with the Samaritan church that started there that there was much, there's much joy with you today? I want to tell you why a lot of times we don't have much joy. You know, you know that God has designed a man to work. If a man's not out working and doing stuff physical, man, it just, it's dep- Justin will talk about it all the time. It's depressing, isn't it? Sometimes you just got to get out and do something. Well, when the church is just taking in, when we're over there, like Jesus says, what you, you know, what you're shown in the darkness, you tell it in the light, you know, what was whispered to you, you stand on the housetop and proclaim it. There's got to be an inflow of what we're receiving from God, but then there's got to be this outflow, this exercising of what we're taking in. Do you know why the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea? Well, everything in there is dead. Well, you know why everything's dead? Because there's a lot of salt. But one of the things is it takes in, but there's no outflowing. And nothing can live in there. For a Christian individually, that's true. And for a church, that is true. What will happen to a church when it's just taking in, when we're just, you know, all happy, we're just all together, and we're just having little cookouts, and by golly, we just like each other here. We got a good thing going. And we look around and there's no care. I want to tell you something. Your joy is going to dry up. There is joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. There is joy in the exercising of what God has given us. The intake of the understanding, the giftings that he's given us, he wants us to use them. I'll, I'll, leave with, I'll, I'll end with this. We uh, have been doing a Bible study in Ardmore for, I don't know, I should journal things. I'm terrible about dates and timing and stuff, but about a year, maybe a little over a year now. And in the last several months, it's been very inconsistent. Part of that's been due to, uh, to me, and part of it's been due to them with just schedules of life but but in all honesty the the zeal had faded it had faded i want to tell you something ardmore is a bigger town than ada i was just about to end the bible study and I get a text a week ago, Saturday. And one of the guys I hadn't heard from in a long time said, Hey, are we doing the Bible study tonight? A guy that I felt like had been wanting to bail for a long time. 
So I called him. And I said, look, man, I said, here's the thing. I said, I've been feeling like for a while that, you know, you guys are really wanting to just not do this. I, I, I just think you're afraid to tell me, you know, just don't want to hurt my feelings. And you're just feeling kind of obligated. And it's kind of like you have to. And he says, brother, I've really been missing this Bible study. And then the other guy down there, me and Dexter went down and met with those guys. And before, every time we would talk about it, I'd say, what are, what are you guys wanting to see? Well, they like the Bible study, but, you know, not as far as planting a church, maybe not, you know. This time, this guy says, I want to see a sovereign grace church planted in Ardmore. Now, let me tell you the, re- the real thing with me. This is the first time in my entire life that I have been in a healthy church. Okay, time out. Our little tiny church in Stratford, I think, was healthy. All right? <laughs> we were small. This is the first time we've been in a church where we have a, a, a unity in, in, our, in our plurality of our elders, and we, tr- we try to be as biblical as we can. Yeah, we make mistakes. Yeah, we can be knuckleheads and all that stuff. But here's what I'm saying. I love our church. So now we come to the real thing of this. Who's willing to say, we have this, but down there they don't have anything? Who's willing to make the drive? We're not talking about walking from Israel to Turkey. We're just talking about getting on some pavement with a car. Who's the one that's willing to say, Lord, I want to put myself out there, and Lord, if you want, I'm willing to go if you'll send me to do this. Here's, here's the thing. I can tell you this. In the last 20 years, it is unbelievable what has transpired and changed in our country. I mean, I don't know if y'all are up to date, but... All kinds of high school, high school girls' track and field records are just being shattered all of a sudden because some lame old dude couldn't compete with the guys, and, well, now he's a girl. And everybody's just like, wow, these records are just dropping. It's ridiculous that we don't even know what we are. And I'm telling you, if you think the church is just kind of over here like they're not going to bother us, This opposition we're reading about, you better tighten up your belt because it's coming. And if you don't want to get off your seat and go, then there's going to come persecution and God will scatter his church. I can't say much about, I can't say enough about I don't want to leave on that note. I want to say this. I love our church. I love the desire, the zeal, and all that. Church, let me say this. Let's never rest on where we're at. Don't ever look back. And This is what we've been doing. This is how good it is. No, we always want to be looking forward. We always want to be intentional in our, in our missions. And I'm talking about just you as an individual at your workplace, your school, whatever it is. But then as a church corporately, We want to be looking and looking to do the same thing that we're doing here. I pray that God would bless each one of you.